The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as often is the case by Stuart Mandel, my colleague at The Athletic, and as he will quickly tell you, my boss. Stu, we just had a Heisman happen. It was probably not as close as I think we both thought it was going to be. Is it time for you to reveal who you voted for? Like, what was it, about two-thirds of the electorate? I voted for Kyler Murray, and uh, I would not have guessed that, that I would be doing that, as recently as the day before championship Saturday. In all my time doing this, I've never seen a race flip itself so quickly and so dramatically. You said it was what you didn't think it was going to be. You thought it was going to be closer than that. I did because I thought some people would have voted earlier. One thing that got brought up a little bit, which was people, and I'm certainly people in, in Tua Tagovailoa's corner were saying, well, it's, it's only one week. It's one fourteenth. You know, could it have made that big of a difference? Well, it's the most important one because it's the conference championship weekend. But I thought there was that element of it where, quite honestly, I thought it would be it would be when you have a guy who seemed to be the front runner by a considerable margin. I'll be honest. I did not have Kyler Murray second all the time for, you know, the first 10 weeks of the season. I mean, there were some times when I had Dwayne Haskins second. Sometimes I had Gardner Minshew second. I had Will Greer up there. I had Quinnen Williams up there at times. But I just think he consistently and how he kept getting better and better. And for me, the deciding factor was this. If you take Kyler Murray off that Oklahoma team, I think they're maybe at best an 8-4 and four team. I think if you take two off that Alabama team, I think there's still probably a good chance they're 13-0. and 0. It's just the perfect storm of bad luck for, for Tua. I mean, he was running away with the thing for most of the season. The reason I kind of realized it was not going to be as close is because, you know, our Heisman straw poll that we do on The Athletic, that's 34 voters who cover college football all over the country. I'm not saying it's an exact representation of the electorate, but, you know, it's, it's I think, telling that going into the weekend, it was 27 of 34 first-place votes for Tua, and then... A week later, it was 28 of 34 first place votes for Kyler Murray. It was just, uh, you know, I think as you got down to like the last few weeks of the season and Kyler Murray just kept doing what he does and you started to realize that as sensational as two has been, it's not like his stats were far and away above Kyler Murray's. In fact, in many cases, they weren't at all. And then it's just angry Alabama fans saying, oh, you're basing it all off one game. No, it's that it's hard to vote for a guy who had his worst game in the most important game of the season. You know, if he had had those exact stats and Jalen Hurts had had to come off the bench and lead them to victory in week seven, to me that looks a lot different than the game at the end of the season that everybody is watching, the most watched game in seven years. You know, it just, it would have been a very incomplete Heisman resume, whereas Kyler Murray obviously finished it off strong. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. This is one thing I noticed also on Twitter, and I think it came from from uh, our friend Chris Felica over at ESPN, where it was listing on on snaps and plays, and I feel like a lot of people kick that around because obviously Tua didn't play anywhere near as many snaps as the other quarterbacks who were finalists did. I didn't really, you know, I felt like that was a little bit of a red herring to me when I saw that. That's that that stat. I just figured, you know, at the end of the day the production and what you mean to the team is ultimately the most important thing. Now, look, I mean, I had Gardner Minshew high up on my list until the Apple cup because without him, I don't even think they're an eight and four team. I think they're probably a six and six team, but I think through it all, just as it relates to, you know, look, this is a playoff team Oklahoma's got. And I think Kyler Murray is had, had a really special year. So what we got now is Lincoln Riley in two seasons has produced two Heisman Trophy winners. That's a heck of a resume for him. And if you're a quarterback in high school, I think he'd be pretty tempted to go to Norman, Oklahoma right now for at least as long as he's there because we know there's a lot of rumblings about him going off to the NFL at some point. There were two pretty, you know, look, I understand why Alabama fans are upset that their guy lost, but there were two pretty annoying anti-Kyler Murray things going around Twitter Saturday night and Sunday morning. One, he barely beat Army. Well, if anybody would know how that game played out, it was me because I'm the idiot who bought the pay-per-view. That was because Army's, I mean, uh, Oklahoma's defense could not get Army off the field. That was not Kyler Murray struggling and and they had to go to overtime because he couldn't produce like he should. And then the one that I just feel like, how is this still a talking point in 2018? Uh, System quarterback. You know, the reason they got two in a row is because, you know, you can just plug any quarterback into that. Well, have you seen what Baker Mayfield's doing for the Browns right now? Yeah, look, I think I think it speaks to the to what Lincoln Riley can do there, but again, at the same time, he's overcoming a really suspect defense as you said, and I think that 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 says a lot and quite honestly, there's a lot of guys who are system guys because they they're they're good fits for those systems and they thrive in it. And I don't think you should hold that against the hold that against the player. I mean, is yeah. this is a system guy got him in the playoff. It's a good system then. You know who else was a quote unquote system guy? Pat Mahomes. So, I mean, these nah, things. Pat Mahomes wasn't really a system guy. I mean, he, he was for, dis- He played he, for Cliff Kingsbury. He didn't play like those other guys played, though. Yeah, but he was discounted at the time because he's yet another Texas Tech quarterback putting up big numbers. So, I mean, was he? He wasn't ever in a Heisman race, as far as I can recall. No, but I think that had more to do with the fact that they were they were barely a bowl team at times. Right. Oh, you know. You, these two things can both be true. The Big 12 has terrible defenses, which make it easier to put up big numbers. That can be true, but it can also be true that a quarterback like Kyler Murray is exceptional. And if you watched him play this year, you know, he was doing unbelievable things. So was Tua. You know, they both, they both were amazing. And I just think that that poor uh, championship game where, where, where it probably didn't help him that Jalen Hurts did come off the bench and lead them to victory, as in you know, you were somewhat replaceable, made the difference. So it's been a week since we were last on here and coaching changes have taken place. Urban Meyer retired, I believe, the day after our last episode. Uh, I don't think we need to rehash that at this point, but you had a story up Sunday on The Athletic about Ryan Day. I mean, this is a really unique situation where he's 
I don't think most football fans know anything about the guy who's now going to be the next coach of Ohio State. No, I mean, I think if you know something about him, you know he's a Chip Kelly protege, but that's about it. You know, he'd been on Kelly's, both his uh, staffs with the Eagles and with the 49ers. And he played for Kelly. He was the, he was the offensive coordinator when Ryan Day was the starting quarterback and a record-setting quarterback at FCS New Hampshire. Uh, so I went right to the source and I said, well, what is it that you think makes Ryan Day so special? And I asked the coaches who knew him best and I started with Chip Kelly. And what was interesting was for a lot of people making the comparison with him to Lincoln Riley, essentially because they were replacing guys who had brought them in and both guys walked away in their mid fifties and just left the program to kind of unproven, at least as head coaches, guys to take over huge jobs. And what's interesting is Chip told me, Ryan Day actually reminds him a lot in actually Bob Stoops. And I said, how do you see it? And he goes, well, Ryan and Bob are both really big family guys. Anybody who's around them, worked with them, knows that. And he said, sometimes you get the knock, a family guy means he's soft. And he goes, it's not that case with either guy because there's a real intensity and a presence there and a competitiveness and so you see it with bob and he goes i see that with ryan who he's known they're from the same town in new hampshire manchester and uh he said it's just there's some there's a real presence to him and an intensity that guys respond to and then i called sean mcdonald who coached both those guys at new hampshire and he said some something similar and just talked about how mature day always was he wasn't the greatest athlete but he always was a thought a couple plays ahead, which sounds a little bit like Lincoln Riley in that regard, too. So, um, you know, I think with Ohio State, what you got with with uh, Ryan Day staying on and elevating him, I think is you get to keep a lot of the system in place of player development, whether it's Mickey Marotti, the strength coach, or the recruiting office and some of those things. And I think you'll get a bunch of the same assistants maybe not the whole staff, but uh, will remain intact because this thing was not broken. I mean, they, they, had, they sputtered at times this year, but clearly they were, they've been recruiting and developing players at a high level, and I think that's what Gene Smith and Ohio State saw with Ryan Day, and, and we'll see if he hits the ground running. They, have a, they have a, uh, you know, obviously has big shoes to fill with Urban Meyer moving on and moving out. He's also going to be coaching at a place with about the highest expectations you could find. You know, I, I've said this before, in my, in my uh, time covering the sport, there's no other blue blood program that has just never had a down period. It's one coach after another after another. So, and he's following a guy who won 90% of his games, right? So I don't think it's realistic that Ryan Day is going to win 90% of his games. That's just, uh, you don't see that very often. But if you go back and look... Throw out the one Luke Fickle interim season. Jim Trassel won 81% of his games. John Cooper won 72% of his games over 13 seasons and eventually got fired. Earl Bruce won 76% of his games over a eight-year span and got fired. And Woody Hayes was, I guess he got fired too. Woody Hayes, 761. Well, who's the last Ohio State coach that wasn't fired? Because Jim Trestle was too. Yeah, I think they were fired for some issues, though, unrelated yeah. to their performance on the field. Clearly. In fairness. I mean, but so I basically guess, the norm, right? The closest Ohio you State. have to a down period, to use your term, was John Cooper, who won at a, an extremely high rate. 
Yeah, and John Cooper was usually in. I mean, his teams were usually in the mix for the Big Ten and or national title. His problem was he couldn't beat Michigan. So the bare minimum expectation is you're you got to win about eighty percent of your games. I would say to 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 keep your job. Um, that's a high bar, uh, but like you said, not broken. They recruit. You know, they're probably one of the three or four best recruiting schools in the country. So you know, he's got a lot. He's got a lot to work with for a first year coach. Yeah, now he may not have his quarterback back. I don't. I'm not reporting that Dwayne Haskins is definitely leaving, but I think there's going to be a lot of interest in him to go. He had a huge season in his first year as a starter. I think a, another year probably would help him just maturity wise. Still, he's still pretty young, but uh, we'll see what happens because they're going to lose some really good players. Obviously, Nick Bosa was hurt almost from the start, but they're going to lose a bunch of really good receivers. And and uh, but Ohio State has done a because they've recruited at such a high level and developed so many good players, they've been able to keep replacing it. And we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see how this thing moves forward. Back to the podcast in a second. But first, Bruce, how's that phone bill looking these days? It's pretty bulky, Stu. A little too, a little too hefty for my, uh, my needs. But this time of year, just with all the coaching stuff going on, I feel like I'm constantly on the phone. So how can you help me out? I can help you out by encouraging you to switch to a new provider, and that is Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is offering the best holiday deal in wireless you've ever seen. Three months of service for only $20, and that's a limited time offer. $20 total gets you three months of wireless service with five gigabytes of 4G LTE data each month plus, and this is the important one for you, unlimited talk and text. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan. You can keep your old phone number along with your existing contacts. They just send you out a packet with a SIM card, pop that thing in there, and you're ready to go. Mint Mobile runs on the nation's fastest, most advanced LTE network. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. So ditch your old wireless bill and start saving with Mint Mobile. Take advantage of that holiday deal before it's gone. Three months of wireless for $20, and then get the plan shipped to your door by free for free by going to mintmobile.com slash audible. That's mintmobile.com slash audible for three months of service for just $20, mintmobile.com slash audible. Another coaching move, which is not a head coaching move, but I wanted to talk about a little bit. So on Sunday, I caught up with this time of year, a lot of coaches are out on the West Coast recruiting. I caught up with a friend for some drinks who was out here recruiting. And it's a it's a big 12 coach. And he just said, Cliff Kingsbury at Texas Tech had basically rotated through three quarterbacks because of injuries. And their skill talent was not really that good. It was a bunch of average guys. And he goes, that was all Cliff. You could tell that shows you how good of a game planner and a play caller he is by putting up the numbers they did. Then he said, you know what? He's going to tear this league up. And he was referenced to the, the Pac-12. Now, that's good news for USC. I don't know if that solves all the problems, but people in the Big 12 are very intrigued by the Cliff Kingsbury to USC move. So I, we, I, you have an, I'm you very have intrigued an, by it. Yeah, so... Tell me how you think it's going to go for not just Cliff, but also Clay Helton in 2019. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing that they went from that night that I left the Coliseum thinking they were going to fire Clay Helton. And then when they didn't, thinking, 
you know, what, what on earth are USC fans going to have to look forward to? And now they have, what do they have to look forward to? The most fascinating OC hire in the country this year. And he's already, by the way, there's already been pictures of him on Twitter. You know, they had recruits in town. He's wearing his USC gear. I mean, I think they're going to score a lot of points, you know, and he's got a talented quarterback there and some, I think most of those receivers are young and coming back. You know, like you said, that doesn't necessarily solve the other side of the ball where they had issues too. Uh, I think he will help them win more games next season. And then, I don't know, what do you, do you think there's a realistic scenario where he would then be the head coach the next year? I don't know. There's people out here who've kind of floated that, that scenario out there. That he would that they would go maybe nine and three that still wouldn't be enough and then there'd be some kind of power play maybe to force Lynn Swan out and bring in somebody another AD and then they'd maybe want to keep Cliff who knows at this point I don't think any anything like that has really been hatched but it's USC and crazy stuff happens out here stuff that you wouldn't think <laughs> you wouldn't think they would do happens it's it's been that way for for it feels like a decade pretty much since Pete Carroll left and um I don't know uh, and you can't rule anything out with, with USC well I guess it's hard to know I mean if he has a big effect I guess maybe people would be so excited about it but would there be any USC fans that go well, wait a minute look at his head coaching record at Texas Tech are we sure we want this guy to be a head coach yeah I think some of them probably would just like I think there's probably some a little reticence because wait, we're going to run the air raid. I don't know how I feel about that, you know, kind of feeling because USC folks at one point, there's a bunch of them who weren't, didn't want chip Kelly and that offense. So it's the same reason why you get some of the, we want a USC guy and everything. But I think in the case of this, I think there would be some concern about, okay, he's great running the offense. Can he run the program, especially a program as big as this, but it's not an easy job to win in Lubbock, Texas. I mean, Mike Leach is about the only one who's come close to winning big in Lubbock. So I don't know if you could entirely, you know, look at it that way, but I'm sure there are some folks here who, who feel like nobody's good enough for USC. And I think that's what it comes back to, you know, look, we'd be crazy if we didn't throw this out there. I mean, Urban Meyer is going to be out of, you know, off the sidelines. I think there's a lot of people who think, well, Urban Meyer is going to come out to LA a year from now. Who knows? I don't think uh, there's no, there's no master plan that I think is, has been put into stone at this point. I would put that possibility out there. So what do you think? Is there a better chance than 20? Give me percentages here. Let's do this. You love your percentage. percentage. I do for a guy who failed math at every turn. I like this part of it. So in 20, in 2020, who do you think has a better chance? Is it, give me the highest percentages on A, Cliff Kingsbury to be the head coach, B, Clay Helton to be the head coach, C, Urban Meyer to be the head coach of the Trojans. Rank them. Exactly the order you just said. A, Kingsbury, B, Helton, C, Meyer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What about wow. you? Uh, I would go A, Helton, B, Kingsbury, C, Meyer. Yeah, and and – you know, with Meyer, uh, definitely as as the days, you know, it's now been a week, I think, since that press conference. Uh, I'm now fully thinking, yeah, he'll be back. I mean, really? I, I didn't think that at first because you've seen how bad his health issues are. And this is this is the real deal. Like, this is not as much as, you know, I don't know, Florida fans would ever think he's faking it. No, he's. It's, it's not just, you know what, and I don't think he is, but it's not just Florida fans, too. There seems like to be a big chunk of, of college football fans, and it's not just Florida fans who think 
that this was some kind of hoax. I know it's people are cynical. You know, I, I would love to know if that's representative of college football fans as a whole, or if that's just Twitter. But uh, he has a cyst in his brain. You know, uh, the, the, there's uh, what was the Mickey Mariotti quote to Pete Thamel that he couldn't. You know, there are times in practice he could not yell. It's it's real. Now, will he get medical help in the next year? And I just know he's going to have the itch to come back. Uh, he, he just will. And USC would be a hard one to turn down if that were really a possibility. All right, we shall see. Any oh, uh, one other coaching thing to to just throw out there over the weekend, or maybe it was on Friday. The days are blurring together. Georgia Tech hired Jeff Collins. He is coming home. He is an Atlanta guy who's worked at Georgia Tech before. Did a nice job at Temple. Just anecdotally, Stu, I've talked to a bunch of coaches, and this has come up where they like that was a good hire. Jeff Collins is really respected by his peers, not just guys who worked with him, but just guys who've seen him out on the recruiting trail. They think he busts his ass. That's a tough job. I think there's going to be some real transitional years in the first couple of years going from Paul Johnson's system, which was really successful. I mean, we should give him credit on that, but it's not going to be easy to you know, flip the roster a little bit. And obviously, to go up against Kirby Smart in that state with how Georgia's been recruiting won't be easy. But I've heard a lot of positives from people in the business about Jeff Collins. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a really good coach. And in terms of what you just brought up about transitioning the roster, you know, everybody remembers the infamous Bill Callahan disaster at Nebraska. Now, that was at a time when Nebraska had been running that option for 40 years, and he tried to turn it into a West Coast offense, which is just stupid. You know, I don't think Jeff Collins is going to be doing that. I guess the question is, do they have a quarterback on their roster that can complete 60% of his passes? I don't know the answer to that. I'll be that's honest. I do not, not. That's probably not. I mean, they're recruiting for the option there. Now, you might, he might need a grad transfer or two in the, in the short term. But I don't think, you know, they've got athletes there. I don't think it's as drastic as maybe people think. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he puts his spin on it. It probably is one of the better coaching hires of this carousel. But that's in part because there have been so many bad ones. Um, how about Utah State welcoming back Gary Anderson, who a year ago left Oregon State, just out of no- just abruptly left Oregon State. Text message, John Canzano shared a bunch of text messages he sent really since the beginning of that season where he was just, you know, it was just odd where he was saying, I brought in the wrong coaches, I've got the wrong staff. I thought after that, that guy would never be a FBS head coach again, but he's still beloved apparently at Utah State. Well, he is by the boosters. Um, as we reported, there was some big money boosters that, that Utah State has who really pushed for him. And what was curious was the, uh, the school and the AD uh, hired a search firm to do a national search and it really didn't turn out that way because they ended up having, <laughs> like, after about five days, they had to cancel the rest of their search because there was a lot of pressure to, to make it Gary Anderson. And so that's the move. And, look, he, he was successful the first time there. So I think that's what the people there are hoping. And he inherits. Matt Wells left behind a very good team with a really good quarterback in Jordan Love and a really explosive offense. So he's walking into a good situation. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, it keeps in theme. Uh, certainly Mac Brown, as we've talked about before, going back to North Carolina. Les Miles coming back to college football. So if there's one person, Stu, who's out of coaching right now, who would you like to see back in coaching? I mean, there's only a couple of jobs that are, that are open right now, but who would you like to see back on the sidelines? Do you have somebody in mind? Well, I thought you were going to say your old 
nemesis, Houston Nutt. Oh, I figure that's who you're going to say. Yeah. No, I don't have anybody in mind. I mean, the fact that we might, I mean, it's not done yet. You know, Actually, you know what? You know what I'd like to see back in college? I like Brett Bielema. I would like to see him back. All right, Bruce, switching gears here. There's a couple topics that I want that are just like, I know our listeners love hearing about these. And so there's just a little bit of reason to bring them up. Conference realignment, A-team playoff. The reason I bring up conference realignment is just this, maybe a little bit inside baseball story in Sports Business Journal today. You know what a grant of rights is? I do. That's when uh, conference schools basically sign away their TV rights. Uh, it's, 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 the, it's how you lock down a school. So, Florida State had that issue when that came up, uh, when there was booster talk of them getting out of the, the ACC. The ACC was a big, big yeah. deal when the ACC got them all. In fact, that's Maryland. That ended up costing Maryland a lot of money when they tried to get out of it. So the American is trying. They've got their new deal comes up in 2020, which is not very far from now. The current one is pretty bad. Seven years, $126 million. Sports Journal, Business Journal says they think they can get three to four times that if they can ensure that UCF, Houston, etc. will still be in the conference by the time that deal, that next deal goes through. So they're trying to convince the schools to sign a grant of rights. Now, if you're UCF, you're having this amazing run in football right now. Seemingly, you're more attractive to other conferences than you would have been at a previous time. Do you, and oh, I should mention another key detail is in order to convince them to do that, they're going to offer them a bigger cut of the pie. So do you take that short-term money and go ahead and sign away your rights? Or do you say, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, in the the event the Big 12 decides to reconsider expansion anytime soon, we got to have the flexibility to do that? Because remember, we're talking... Let's see here. The final deal year, final year of the current deal is worth about twenty three million, or a little less than two million per school. Well, I mean, let's just say, let's just be generous and say they they managed to turn that from two million a school to ten million a school. I mean, the Big Twelve schools make well north of thirty million a school. Yeah, that's hard math to play with, right? I mean, what do you think the end game is in this? Do you think this is just stuff people like to talk about and, and speculate on, or you think you think it'll get weight? I mean, the Big Twelve doesn't really have any incentive to expand. And their deals not, are not up for another three or four years after that. It's just bad timing. Like, if you're UCF, you'd probably want to know an answer before you sign that. But I don't think they're going to get that answer anytime soon. And then there are football reasons for the Big 12 to do that, but there's not really financial reasons. Their schools are doing really, really well. I mean, I think the image that people had a few years ago that the Big 12 was, you know, barely hanging together is just kind of outdated at this point. Yeah, I'd agree with that certainly would help them perception wise. If Texas continued to ascend, they had a nice step forward this year. I think that helps them. And I do think that helps them. I think the other thing to keep in mind is, and to me, this is something that is very noticeable. Just working on broadcasts is you see the big TV ratings that certainly Ohio state can draw, but some of the bigger brand schools in the big 10 brings in. And I think Texas getting back, will help the perception of the Big 12. I mean, certainly Oklahoma now, having Heisman winners back-to-back years, going to the playoff again, that definitely helps. But it needs to be more than them, I think, perception-wise. But at the end of the day, I think we had George Schroeder on our podcast maybe a year and a half ago, and he did a really good job articulating some of the, I don't want to call it hidden money, but some of the deals that people don't really know about that kind of, what we're calling third-party deals. Do you remember what this was? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. K-State, so, some of those. 
So they, they have they they unlike the other leagues, right? They hold on to their tier th- three rights. Thank so, you. You know, the SEC and the Big Ten and the Pac-12, your tier three rights are are signed over to the conference network. Big 12 doesn't have a conference network. Texas kept the Longhorn network. I mean, Texas makes a good chunk of change. So on top of the 30-plus million that the conference distributes, Texas makes enough off the Longhorn network that they're making as much as the Big Ten schools are. Oklahoma doesn't make quite that much, but more than you would think. And then even, like you said, even some of the smaller schools. Another thing somebody brought up to me that I never thought about is, you know, they outsource those. So... Whereas the Pac-12, for instance, when they started their network, the schools had they had to spend a lot of money building a studio and building out the infrastructure to broadcast games from every campus, and you know that that comes out of your bottom line. Big Twelve schools don't have to do that because they, it's like for some reason I, I somehow managed to see this. Oklahoma's is Fox Sports. I mean, they have like their own. I don't even know how to describe it. Fox Sports produces content for Oklahoma that is basically under the Oklahoma school-owned brand, but they don't, Oklahoma gets compensated for it. They don't pay for it. So yeah, there's, that's, I'm probably getting too far into the weeds, but um, I do think there'll be a big shuffling a few years down the road when a bunch of these conferences, I want to say the Pac-12, the Big Ten, Pac-12, Big 12 deals all come up within a couple of years of each other. And so does the SEC CBS deal, although I don't think that's going to affect much. So that's when I think you could start to see some uh, some shuffling. Mm-hmm. The other topic I think is more interesting to me, and that is moving the playoff to eight teams. Uh, as I think I said on this podcast a couple weeks ago, I would like to see that at this point. It sounds like there's a little more people in my corner on this. Am I correct? Yeah, so I predicted before this thing even started, it's in my little playoff book that nobody read. Uh, I read that, it, too. I read <laughs> okay. it. That six years in, they would they would go to eight. Uh, it would just be unavoidable. And the reason for six years in is it's halfway through the contract. So all of the bowls, the Rose Bowl, all those bowls that host the semifinals would have hosted an equal number of times. So if you're going to do it, that would be you know a good like symmetrical time to do it. First four years of system, I really didn't hear any clamoring from it for it from anybody that would matter particularly. You know, Mike Leach can get up there and campaign for his. 64, yeah. I don't think that makes a difference. You need important people, commissioners, ADs, etc. Then the Georgia-Alabama two SEC teams thing happened last year, and you started to feel a little bit of discontent. And I think that the discontent has started to really uh, bubble up this past year. Can you? And it would have been, you know, it would have gone to immediate crisis mode if Georgia had gotten in. But even without that, you know, there's a lot of frustration with a system where. I mean, there's a lot of different kind of points why there's frustration. One would be that I think the commissioners thought they were signing on to a system with the committee where strength of schedule would be rewarded, conference championships would be rewarded, and that's barely happening. The Big Ten's champion has been left out three years in a row. That, that can't sit well. And then, you know, the UCF thing is not a small deal. 20, what are we at, 25 in a row at this point? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a serious case to be made at this point that this team should have a chance to play for the national championship. Not under the current format, where it's clearly, you know, they don't really have a case to be one of the four best, but in an expanded format, they would certainly have a shot. So I'm here on this podcast to make a big announcement, Bruce. Okay. What what, what are you expensing on the athletics budget? Tell me. I am, I am now on board. After many years of resisting, I'm ready for the A-team playoff. Good. Welcome. I'm, I'm with you. So... 
Can I tell you what was this, the thing that, that, that got me over the edge? Sure. Let's hear it. Okay, this is going to sound crazy, but um, it's all going to come down. No, it's not. It's, it's, I've been starting to feel a little bit more frustrated. And then more than anything, though, I think at the time we went to four, the bowl system was a little more uh, attractive still. I mean, I'm, as you know, I was a huge, huge fan of the Rose Bowl. Ohio State and Washington are going to the Rose Bowl this year, and they're happy about it, but it's seen as a because they didn't make the playoff. But I think the bigger trend we're seeing is with the star players skipping the bowls. I know we want to protect the regular season. The regular season is very important. But your postseason should be more important than that. should be important enough that Will Greer doesn't feel like he has to sit out the bowl game, the Camping World Bowl. That's but, actually a decent bowl game. But Will Greer under the system you and I are pushing for would still sit out because West Virginia would not play in that 18 playoff. Correct. So I guess what I'm saying, here's what I'm trying to say. The idea, can I give you a better, can I give you a better reason? Sure. So there are 130 teams in FBS football. As you said, UCF was undefeated last year. They're undefeated this year. I think there needs to be some access for teams that are not in the power five to get into the playoff. And so that, that's your number one reason that is because if not, then let's just have separate divisions and say, okay, they're like, it's division, division one, division one, a division one, you know, like I think you'd have to separate a, uh, the power five from the group of five. And then you may as well lump the group of five in, with the F with the FCS at that point, because if you're telling me that they're like, there is no access for them, they're kind of screwed. And I think that, you know, you can nitpick their schedule all you want, but the way the, the playoff is set up now, it's not like there's uniformity between, you know, how many, how many conference non-conference games, the SEC versus the other leagues have either. I mean, it's not across the board. Notre Dame doesn't have to play in a conference title game. So I'm like, you know what? Why not give Fresno State slash certainly UCF and, a, and maybe an at-large team or, or two, I guess would an at-large team be one, and give them a chance to get in the playoff? Because I think it would be a fun first round, and I think it would be intriguing. Maybe they'd get blown out, but who knows? We don't know that. And I would like to see it as opposed to this, which feels way more formulaic. We've seen Georgia play Alabama. We've seen that game already. And I'm not saying that Georgia would lose 10 times out of 10 because I don't think they would. But, like, you're giving other people chances. It's not like Georgia, and I, I, I feel bad throwing Georgia on into this, but that would be the two-loss team people were talking about possibly getting in. It's not like Georgia had a bunch of great wins. You know, going in, they you realize a, they would be in the eighteen playoff. I and I'm fine with that, but they wouldn't come in the like. The point is, they shouldn't be next in line as opposed to these other teams who could win every game and they still don't have a chance. If that's the case, then they shouldn't be in FBS football. Yeah, and I, well, and I think that if you were getting the Power Five commissioners to be t- totally honest with you, they would say, "Why is that our problem? Like we didn't make them sign up for FCS football." The marketplace has dictated over the decades that we are the better teams and people. Well, then don't schedule. Then don't schedule them. Then just schedule all. They barely do. Do what, do. Nick Saban, do what Nick Saban does or says, 
and and say, all right, we're we're not going to play any FCS. We're not going to play anybody who's not a play anybody who's not a, a power five. Don't like give this charade. I know you I know you want to do it because those are the money games, and I get it. Those schools, unless they do a home and home, they you know they stand to make money from it. But at that point, it's, I feel like it's just kind of a bogus thing, and it's really not fair. Is a, is a crappy word to use because nothing in life seems to be fair. But it's really kind of the players get screwed on that deal. So I, I don't disagree. I think well, what UCF's done, they deserve. You know, at the very least, they deserve something better than a trip to play an LSU team that you know is frankly not going to care that much about this game. Um, they're nine and three. You know, it's better than who they usually get to play, but it's not obviously the playoff. Um, I will say that I don't think people have thought about the how there will be a, this. This could be a little complicated. So this year is not a great example. I think everybody agrees this year UCF is one of the eight best teams. In fact, they would probably be the seven seed. Washington would be lower than them. But most years, that eight, that that group of five teams going to be the lowest seeded team, right? So basically, the number one seed will always play, almost always play the group of five team. Which you're going to have some people saying that's a that's an unfair advantage, right? We have to play. I get to. I have to play this team, and they get to play Western Michigan. All right. I wouldn't have much sympathy for that because maybe that's a reward for earning the number one seed. But here's the problem. Most of the time, these group of five teams turn out to be better than people are giving them credit for. So, but we just don't have a good way to rate them. So, how'd you like to be Alabama and go undefeated and get that Houston team from a few years ago or UCF last year, who is frankly not the 18th best team in the country, but that's just how the way the committee or whoever we would be using ranked them? You could see a lot of upsets of the number one seed. That's fine. I mean, look, that. It- You'd have a better chance of seeing a one seed get knocked off in the opening round of the college football playoff than you do of it getting knocked off in the NCAA tournament. And we still watch. So I think that should be done. I really do. And it's, uh, to me, it has nothing to do with whether more players are going to sit out. That's a separate issue to me. Well, so, that's just my evolution in it was. You know, I don't care how you got here, Stu. I'm just glad you got here. Okay. I don't get to explain how I got here. Not if it's faulty logic now. It's not faulty logic. It's the way the sport has changed. The sport used to be about getting to the best bowl game possible, and the BCS championship game was a bowl game. So two teams went to that, but only two teams. And so it was still a big deal to go to some of these other major bowls. And then we went to four, and already the focus is almost entirely on the playoff. So that even there's not, you know, like look at this year's bowl lineup. I know you're not a, you know, you're very anti, you hate when anybody says there's too many bowl games. I do. Just give me football. And I agree with you on that. But how do you feel about the lineup? Have you looked at the bowl lineup? Some of it. Do, do these matchups, you see a lot of matchups that are like, oh, I definitely want to watch that one. Yes, Stu. I want to watch all of them. You know why? Because in three weeks from now, I won't have any of them. So I, I don't disagree. I'm saying I watched, usually. usually I, watched, I watched the Laney College Ventura California Junior College All-Star Game on Saturday afternoon. Good for you. I, I want to watch these games. I've always been a huge fan of these games, and usually when the lineup comes out, I can point at the Alamo Bowl or this bowl or that bowl and be like, that's going to be fun. There aren't a lot of those this year just because of the way the the matchups shook out. So there's something wrong here where we get to the the postseason, which for most sports is the most important time of year, and we have two games that people are fired up about, the playoff games. I think people are looking forward to the Rose Bowl. And then everybody else is looking at the other ones going, well, I guess, you know, I'm going to watch that because it's on, but it's not that great. And you've got 
star player saying, well, this, this is not important enough for me to play in. So knowing that reality, then I think you should just go ahead, expand to eight, open it up to more teams. In fact, more teams would even be in the mix until late in the season. The other bowl games become the NIT, but that's where, that, frankly, some people probably think it already is that way, and that's where it was headed anyway. It's inevitable. It's going to happen at some point, and uh, I'm in. I'm not thrilled with your logic, but that's okay. Well, you just said before it didn't matter how I got there. I got here's, there. Why, here's why it matters. You can go watch the Cherry Bundy Boca Raton Bowl, and you can see Bill Clark's team, right? And they've had a great year, and I think they deserve the attention. And you can see some of the other matchups that, you know, like I think this is a good chance to I, – I kind of roll my eyes when people kind of – and I'm not saying you just did this just now, but like crap on the other bowls and say, well, nobody's going to watch. Nobody cares. Oh, people will watch. Yeah, I mean, I'm not just talking about betters, but I think it's good for – Butch Davis did a really good job at FIU. They were pretty good last year, but, it, you know, all the attention was on Lane for all sorts of reasons. But I think it it's good when people – you know, I get it when they say the bowl games don't matter, but I feel like the people who often say the bowl games don't matter are people who college football doesn't matter to. People who just kind of dismiss it and say, oh, they're a bunch of exhibition games or NFL fans. Or they're just or they're just talking heads or they're just, you know, it's hot air from Twitter. I'm just, That's what I think I'm just disappointed we didn't get better matchups, you know? Like that that Camping World Bowl of 9-3 and three Syracuse against 8-3 and three West Virginia on paper is one of the better games, but now it's without Will Greer, so... That's now no longer that attractive. You could have had Washington State against West Virginia in the Alamo Bowl. Yeah. But Iowa State traveled. You could have had, by the way, you could have had Pitt, West Virginia, and the bowl people for some reason didn't want that. They had that opportunity. Yeah. So we have Stanford, who was just in the Sun Bowl two years ago, playing again against a Pitt team that's seven and six. Like we, We can do better than that. You know what's better than that? The Dollar General Bowl at Lad People Stadium. You know who's playing in that one? You probably do, but... Uh, it is, let's see, that's the, is that the Buffalo one? That Buffalo, is Buffalo. Troy. It's, yeah, Lance Leipold against Neil Brown. Hey. That's a hell of a matchup. I'm with you. Some of these first week bowl games that people generally, like, basically what happened this year was the, the, the ones with the Power 5 teams kind of broke the wrong way. But I believe there are two of them. Okay, so that's not champion versus champion, but Buffalo and Troy are both really good teams. But you have in the Boca Raton Bowl, Conference USA champ UAB against MAC champ NIU. In the New Orleans Bowl, you have Sunbelt champ Appalachian State against Middle Tennessee, who made their conference championship game and barely lost. They did a good job of getting some good group of five matchups. All right. You want to go to the mailbag, still? I do. And we've got a lot of emails stored up. So as always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We had such a short episode last week that we didn't get to any, and I, when I went to um, go through it today, it was like, oh my gosh, we got a lot to catch up on. All right, I will start this. I'm going to start with Mike Dodonna, who said, I don't care how you pronounce it. I actually went to school and grew up with a Dodonna, so I'm guessing that's right, from Westville, Indiana. Guys, I really don't understand the push for Georgia to be included in the playoff. Apparently, just playing Alabama tough enough to qualify you as a top four team, Georgia now had has now had Alabama on the ropes twice and failed to close the deal both times. So why is everyone clamoring for them to get another shot? Has any team gotten more off a bump from a loss? Uh, before you start, Stu, you know who's got a big bump from a little close loss? Charlie Weiss got a humongous bump. That was the best thing that he, that probably ever happened in his Notre Dame tenure, and it still wasn't a win. So convince Mike he's wrong because I think he's right. 
Well, he's right, but also when he says everyone's clamoring for them, uh, on that last night of the season, who actually was clamoring? It was SEC coaches, uh, the SEC commissioner, and Kirk Herbstreit. I, I didn't sense a lot of other, you know, I think everybody else was kind of uncomfortable with it. But basically, the the reason that this was even a talking point is that the selection committee is so over all over the map from one year to the next that people got really fixated on, well, it's four best, not four most deserving, four best. And I think Georgia is one of the four best. And I said on here last week, I do think subjectively, I test, whatever you want to call it, it's Alabama, Clemson, Georgia on another level from everybody else, including Notre Dame, including Oklahoma. But they don't deserve to be in there for the reasons he's saying. Like, I want to see Alabama play Oklahoma. I don't want to see Alabama play Georgia again. Who knows? Oklahoma might beat them. Oklahoma might put up 70 on them. We don't know. Let's find out. There you go. Stu and Bruce from Mike Plant in Sydney, Australia. How about that? I wanted to get your thoughts on Maryland hiring Mike Loxley. Many local people are praising the hire. When he says local people, does he mean in Australia? Because that would surprise me if everybody in Australia is talking about Mike Loxley. Pretty sure he means Maryland's too. Probably. Many local people are praising the hire as a runaway success, saying this will finally allow Maryland to keep a lot of the local high school talent in the state. But I'm not so sure. While Loxley is definitely a great recruiter, shouldn't his head coaching record, both on and off the field, come into play? My feeling is Maryland would have been better off going after a younger, up-and-comer like Scott Satterfield, Mike Houston, or Jeff Collins. I think Loxley is a good fit for this in a lot of ways because of everything that the program and the school has gone through in the last year. It's obviously been really messy. I, I thought I watched his press conference on BTN, and I thought it was impressive. Because one of the people he, he kind of called out and thanked for his support was Marty McNair, who's the dad of Jordan McNair, who is the late offensive lineman who had passed away. And they go way back. And as Loxley said, they leaned on each other because Mike Loxley and his family dealt with the tragic loss of their son about a year ago as well. And I thought to have the support and the kind of the blessing of the McNair family is, is pretty significant. Loxley certainly has the support of some of the big influential people close to the program that he's had for a while. Now, look, his tenure at New Mexico less than a decade ago was, was disastrous. It was bad off the field and it was really bad on the field. But guys can evolve and grow, and I think he has. Um, you know, again, I, I referenced this a couple of – right when the Maryland job was coming open – I had referenced that Loxley was a was going to be seen as a strong candidate by people who count there, and the reference I made for a lot of people is Ed Ogeron and Loxley have a lot in common. They both are really lauded as as great recruiters and really thought of well by high school coaches. They also took jobs that were probably not great spots for them the first time, and they had disastrous runs and. I think, knowing Orgeron's case especially, I think the run, because it was so, so disastrous, it forced them to make changes and be open to changes that a lot of times coaches who have these tenures that aren't great may not be as open to make. And so after they you know, think no one takes them seriously to have a chance at another head coaching job, but they keep learning and keep kind of evolving, and they go to some place where they can prove themselves. And in the case of Loxley, he went to he went and spent a bunch of time with Alabama Nick Saban. It's certainly he's not the first head coach 
who has gotten who's gotten more than just a, a fresh coat of paint from Nick Saban. You certainly see it with Lane Kiffin. You've seen it with several other guys. And I just think he, for a program that has really been kind of bruised and banged up, I think he is an idea. He's the right guy at the right time for them. I'm not saying he's gonna push past Michigan State and Michigan or Penn State and Ohio State, but he is a really good recruiter. As recently as like a month ago, I had a sit down with Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State, and he basically told me if Mike Loxley, if they had kept him at Maryland, Dwayne Haskins is at Maryland right now. And usually, you can say that in the recruiting process. But once you're at the other school and you've had a lot of success, usually guys don't go there the way Dwayne did with me when we talked a couple of weeks ago. So I think that speaks to the clout that Mike, Mike Loxley has there. I mean, I think he gives them a chance. And I'm not sure some of those other names would have jumped into the middle of a mess because you don't know who your boss is going to be. And there's a lot of uncertainty in Maryland. So that's you know my 10 cents on that. I think he was the right hire. You know, there are certainly times when you just want to go out and get the best coach on the market, uh, regardless of their past connections. That this was not one of them. After everything that that school has been through recently, you need somebody who mo- most, if not all, of the fan base would immediately gravitate toward. Whereas some random, you know, I, I think the world of Scott Satterfield. I think Louisville is very fortunate to get him. Um, but is that really the hire that's gonna? bring Maryland back together. And the other thing is what exactly what you just said, like who knows? We'll see if he, how much he's changed, but I was just looking back at his, his career, you know, you learned how to be a head coach from the head coaches you work for. And the six seasons before he became New Mexico's coach, he was working for Ron Zook. Uh, I would not necessarily consider that to be the model for a college head coach. So now he has spent the past uh, three seasons under Nick Saban. And I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see some of the process installed in College Park. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's it's he does inherit some good offensive players. I'll definitely say that. So we'll see what they can do there. Next question from John Ben Al at Ridgeland, Mississippi. Two questions. A couple of weeks ago, you said on on the Audible that Alabama would have its semifinal in Dallas. Once Oklahoma was named the four seed, all of a sudden they're in Miami. So the number one seed gets first choice over all semifinal bowls. That is correct, right, Stu? No, they don't get choice, but they can they can lobby behind the scenes for one thing, and which is basically the, that. The, though, yeah, right? the, the committee it's the committee's call, and the committee decided Does, that that was an unfair that would have been an unfair advantage for Oklahoma. Question two: I find it to be no coincidence that the rotation of semifinalist sites are warm weather locations. Is the CFP, which is under zero NCAA jurisdiction, obligated to choose an existing NCAA-approved bowl site for the semifinal? What's to stop, say, Indianapolis from establishing a sham bowl committee for the sole purpose of bidding to host a semifinal? Call it the Indiana Semifinal Bowl, sponsored by Old Style. Well, Indianapolis and anybody else can bid for the championship game. And it does move around, and I believe Indianapolis is hosting it. But the the semifinals, I mean, those are just deals that were made with um, the traditional BCS or even before that bowls, and they're all in warm weather cities because that <laughs> once upon a time that's what you wanted to do in Jan- December and early January is go to a New Orleans or Phoenix or Pasadena or Miami to play in your bowl game. I, I'm not so sure. I mean, ask the players if they would rather spend. 
the week of Christmas in Indianapolis or Pasadena? I think you would get your answer there. But yeah, it's not the NCAA that runs this thing. It's the conferences. They made deals with their friends at the traditional bowl games. I do think if you see it go to eight teams, those first round games would be on campuses. And I assume the semis would still be at the major bowl games, but uh, we got a ways to go before we would find that out. All right. Uh, Mike Clark, Stu and Bruce, if Texas would have beaten OU in the Big 12 title game, do you believe Georgia would have gotten the number four spot or would the committee elevate Ohio State to avoid snubbing a 12-1 conference champ? I'd like to believe that they would have elevated Ohio State, even with that 29-point loss to Purdue, above them. I just, Again, I just don't see how you can take snub that many conference champs, especially with a one-loss team when the other one has two losses. It's not like, it's not like Georgia had great wins on their schedule. I mean, they had a 20-point loss, too, albeit against a better opponent. But they lost by 20 and have a second loss, whereas Ohio State lost by 29 and would have won their conference championship. I I think you're right. I mean, I think it's easy to look at it now and say, well, they had Georgia 5, so Georgia would have been 4. But that isn't the decision that they would have been making. They would have been comparing. It's unclear whether they really even compared Ohio State to Georgia head-to-head. So now that that would be the one and only comparison they would be making. And I do think they would have gone with the conference champ. You know, they wouldn't have been comfortable with the 29-point loss, but I think they would have been more uncomfortable with ignoring ignoring both conference champion and number of losses. I mean, here's here's my thing when you're when you're lining these two up. Ohio State drilled a good Michigan team, wasn't even close, and they had some other pretty good wins. I mean, Georgia has you know, really one pretty good win to me. I guess they, I guess you can give them Kentucky. Maybe I'm not being fair on that, but they have Florida and Kentucky. But after that, it's not like, you know, it's for a team to have two losses, you better have a bunch of big W's, and they don't. Well, but the committee would tell you that any SEC win is a big win. Are you being cynical to poke the bear? Is that what you're doing? They have eight SEC teams in their final top 25, so... I mean, to them, Georgia, here, let me pull up the schedule. I'm just saying, Stu, like, I'm just saying, here, hear me out on this. So Ohio State, their wins, they beat, they won at Penn State, which is certainly, I think, Penn, beating Penn State on the road is certainly as good as beating Kentucky. They, they blew out Michigan State by 20 on the road, right? And they blew out Michigan, who at the time was number four at the end of the season by, by like 25 points. That's those are three really good wins for a team that only has one loss. By the no, way. I agree. I mean, I think the Michigan win is better than the Florida win for Georgia. The win at Penn State is, it, I mean, let's be honest, that's a better win than at Kentucky. But Kentucky is ranked fairly similar, and yeah. it was more decisive. It was you said Michigan State? I guess the the one would be. I mean, Michigan State seven and five. That's not a great. That's not much that, better that's than beating mean Georgia. Eight, beat eight, seven and five Auburn. They beat seven. But they five also South beat. Carolina. They also beat your alma mater, who's eight and five, and they blew them out by three touchdowns. But here's where here's where the. I mean, this is the the fundamental flaw in the way the committee has been approaching this, is that that's basically all they look at. Oh, that team was seven and five, and they don't really care. And this is what I think irks the the conferences with a nine game schedule. They don't really care how South Carolina got to seven wins, right? That, that that included games against wins over Chattanooga, Akron, and Coastal Carolina, you know, because they only play eight conference games. If I compare that real quick to seven and five Michigan State, okay, well, first of all, their first one of the season was against Utah State, who ended up winning, what, 10 games? Mm-hmm. And then they lose to ASU, who's decent, and then they beat Central Michigan. 
Like that's not even close. <laughs> that's, right. That's not even clo- close in terms of which seven and five. And that's what the committee's supposed to be doing, right? They yeah. Are by the way, Michigan, Yeah, they're supposed to be, but I think that they don't look much beyond the records when it comes to opponents. You know, what are they doing in there, Stu? What are they doing in there? Just eating all this food and that's it. Eating the food <laughs> and uh, looking at. I mean, they look at the resumes. I just don't think they look. One of the things I guess I should have been more concerned about initially was that they decided they weren't going to have like an RPI type, you know, metric that they went by. And I've been through the mock. I mean, you look at the team schedule and it has the records of the teams you played next to it. And that's about as deep as it goes. So um, I don't think that eight game versus nine thing comes in at all. Um, I've talked about that with Florida, that if they're the number 10 team in the country, they're clearly not looking, drilling down on their record very much. So, again, this is something that people are getting frustrated with. Nick, oh boy, I wish you had used, I wish this yeah, was person. So. Nick, V-A-G-H-Y. Uh, hey, guys, first big fan, listen to all your episodes. Thank you very much. Second, serious question. I know there's a lot of ifs involved this in this, but if UCF was to handily beat LSU, and if Oklahoma somehow wins the college football playoff, leaving USCF as the only undefeated team, where would you rank the Knights in the final poll? Number five. So after all that about how unfair it is to UCF and and they should get to play, you're not well, even gonna you're not gonna even consider uh, putting them ahead of the top four. No, I mean, look, you know what? Actually, I shouldn't say that. Maybe if like who's the no? Because if Notre Dame gets gets blown out of the building, maybe I would put them ahead of Notre Dame. So I sh- you're right. I shouldn't shouldn't say automatically five, but the problem is so Oklahoma is going to have beaten some heavyweights. They're certainly going to beat Alabama because that's what it take to get to the next game, and then either Clemson or Notre Dame, and that would be a clear number one for me. For UCF, I think realistically the probably the highest they could get is four. I yeah, think. I was just playing it out, and I think you're right. I don't think they would move ahead. Certainly not going to move ahead of Alabama. Alabama also blew out LSU. I don't think they would move ahead of Clemson, but they could move ahead of Notre Dame. So, yeah. so probably four. Utah once finished. Do you remember when Utah went undefeated um, and beat Alabama in the Sugar Bowl? Mm-hmm. They actually finished number two that year in the AP. It's a much different system because of the BCS, though. Yeah, and it was, you know, he's also talking about the AP poll and not the playoff committee. The AP poll is under no obligation to be like, well, your strength of the schedule was this. They, they could do whatever they want. Boy, would people be ticked off. <laughs> would they? Would they? I mean, I guess people are just at this point are kind of just looking for reasons to get irked. I, for some reason, UCF has really gotten under the skin, mostly SEC fans, but I don't think it's limited to the SEC because they made up that national title last year. So now, people are actively rooting against the team that in any other sport would be considered a Cinderella story. Can I give at least a qualifier here? That Kyle Whittingham team you're referencing that finished second, their resume is is a lot better than UCF's. They opened the season, they beat a top 25 Michigan team on the road. They beat a number 11 TCU. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That Michigan team may have been in the top 25 at the time, but I'm pretty sure that's the one that finished 3-9. and nine. It is. Okay. So that one we'll throw out. They beat TCU. TCU was number 11 in the country, and TCU finished number 7 in the country overall, was 11-2. and two. Right. That's a good win. They beat number 14 BYU that finished ranked, and that was a 10-3 and three team. That's another really good win. And then they whipped Alabama, who was number 4 in the country, and beat them by two touchdowns. So, 
I mean, and those three wins were in the last five games. That's pretty good. That was a good team. I, I don't. By, by the way, also what's not in there, they beat or, an Oregon State team that wasn't ranked at the time that finished in the top 20. So add that one to the list. That's significant for a different reason that I just thought of. So among the teams that Utah finished ahead, so, finished, so Florida won the national championship. They were number one. Utah was number two. Ahead of that Sam Bradford, Oklahoma team, uh, which would have had two losses. But also ahead of a USC team that I don't think has ever gotten proper credit for just how good it was. The 08 USC team with Ray Malaluga and Brian Cushing and all those guys. But that team did lose to Oregon State. So that, that could have been your reason for putting the Utes ahead of them. Yeah. I mean, look, they were, that was a really good team that finished in the top 20. I think that deserves some credit. So, All right. Here's an interesting one from Brad in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Bruce and Sue love the pot. I know that typically coach of the year is the guy who's perceived to have done the most with the least. People won't like this, but to me, the guy who's coach of the year is Nick Saban. In the year of the QB transfers, Saban kept both of his guys. He managed his team, kept both QBs prepared. Sure, he has elite talent. However, managing that talent winning championships can be harder than leading the underdog team to a few more wins than expected. Nick Saban is my coach of the year. Do you agree with him? I don't. I think he certainly is in the running. I think Brian, what Brian Kelly did was harder. Now, look, Nick Saban had to shake up his staff, too. I feel like Nick Saban has way more margin for error. Now, some of that's because he, Nick Saban and his staff have recruited and developed so well over the years. I just think what happens with the coach of the year is sometimes it's like who can overcome the most. And as compelling a point as Brad raised, I just don't feel like, you know, it's a little bit like what we said at the beginning of the podcast. You take two off the Alabama team, and they're still probably a 13-0 team at this point. So... I don't know. I, that is that is something to be said for managing it. It's also something to be said for the kinds of kids he's recruited and the competitiveness and, and props to certainly Jalen Hurts for how he's handled that. Um, I, I, for me, Brian Kelly, I think, is the coach of the year. They had to replace, you know, he replaced his defensive coordinator, kept it in-house. The guy he, he elevated, Clark Lee, did a really good job. He had to replace probably the best old line coach in the country. That guy who he brought in did a good job. They lost two first round offensive linemen then in the middle of the year they lost the leader of the offensive line they shuffled the quarterback job maybe maybe they should have got it right earlier but ian book turned out to be a little bit of a revelation for them i think they did i think brian kelly has probably the strongest argument to be national coach of the year but certainly nick saban is keeps proving why he's the best that's ever been in the sport i mean there's a there's a definitely a flaw in this process where once you get your program up and going you just basically can never be recognized for being the best coach in the country that year, even though you're the best coach of all time. So I was just looking it up. He's won the Eddie Robinson Coach of the Year Award twice in 2003 at LSU when they won the national title and 2008. So that was before the first of his five national titles. So he hasn't this whole run. He has never won national coach of the year, which is kind of insane. And I think it's hard to say this without having seen how the playoff plays out. But if they win the national championship, they would be the first 15-0 and team, first 15-0 and national champion. And he would have done it in a year where he lost, what was it, six assistant coaches, just plugged new guys in, transformed his offense. Yeah, to me, I would vote him, I would definitely vote him coach of the year. And I wouldn't say that, you know, necessarily every single year he won a national title. But, you know, this is a team that people are talking about could potentially be looked at as one of, if not the best of all time. Shouldn't you be recognized for that? Yeah, I think I think you're right. This question is from Patrick Einit. 
Dear Stu and Bruce, love the pod. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Patrick. What is the national media affairs love? What is the national media's love affair with Washington? Every year they seem to be overhyped and don't ice up to it. I see them as an above average team, but not as good as the media wants them to be. On a similar note, Jake Browning had one good year seemingly six years ago and has been quiet since then. I don't understand why everyone thinks he is so great and why Washington is. Stu, you want to take it? We've talked about the Jake Browning thing before. You know, it's a little delicate. I think think we can both agree he never kind of replicated what he did in 2016 for whatever reasons. But uh, the first part, it's like above average. You know, they're the number nine team in the country. (laughs) If If they're only above average, then I guess most of the country is average. They didn't have the year we thought they would before the season. But they're still Pac-12 champ. They're still playing in the Rose Bowl. And over the past three seasons, they've gone to a New Year's Six Bowl all three years. Played in the playoff the first year. Played in the Fiesta Bowl. Now they're playing in the Rose Bowl. That's more than above average, my friend. Yeah. I mean, we've actually, our crew has done Washington four times. I think they're a really good defensive team. They've gotten better as zero went on because the one piece they missed, and certainly without Vita, Vita Vea, it hurt them, was... They didn't have the same edge pressure that they had before. Now they're starting to get it with Joe Tryon, who's come on. He's a redshirt freshman. They, I think the issue with Jake Browning, I would not say, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't know anybody who raves about Jake Browning. He's just been there a long time. And he's won a lot of games. And he's been a good fit for the system. And if you look at what Jake Browning and Miles Gaskin and Ben Burke-Hervin, they're the nucleus of a class that wasn't even ranked as a top 25 class. And they really turned Washington from being pretty good to really good and to be in the class of the Pac-12. So I think that's why they get most of the credit because everybody else in the Pac-12 has been pretty shaky in that point. I mean, Stanford has probably been the next consistently good team, and Stanford's down this year even further. So I think that's the explanation for it. Um, He's we'll twenty-two. They're twenty-two and five in the Pac-12 the past three years. So yeah, it's a down conference, but that's still pretty good. I will say it would really help. I think maybe what he's alluding to is they've done very well in the Pac-12, but they haven't had that big uh, win, non-conference win over a highly ranked team, including losing to Auburn this year, who didn't turn out to be all that great. So it would certainly help their credibility if they could beat Ohio State. Yeah, all eyes will be on that game, certainly because Urban Meyer's last game. You have the second most explosive offense in the country, only to behind Oklahoma. So, big test for that defense. What percentage chance do you give Washington of winning the Rose Bowl? 45% chance. That's pretty good. Uh, That's not what I was going to go with. What would you go with? Uh, 30. Okay. Yeah. And, And, you know, I have a lot of respect for Peterson, obviously. And I have a lot of respect for that defense. I don't think Haskins is going to throw for six touchdowns. I just don't think they're they, – they don't have the kind of offense that can exploit Ohio State. So I just don't – and I, and mostly I just don't see Ohio State losing Urban Meyer's last game. Yeah, no, look, I, I think that that uh, that definitely adds a little more meat on the plate for, for the Buckeyes to send them out th- that way. But we'll see. Washington, by the way, will be very interesting next year when they have Jacob Eason as their quarterback. Okay, we can uh, we can get into that in the offseason still. Yes, we have a lot of time to talk about that. Last one, Bart in Madison. Bruce and Stewart love the pod and the athletic. Thank you, Bart. I'll get right to it. What happened to Wisconsin? Quarterback issues. I think I would start with that. They, 
you know, the game we did when they played uh, your alma mater at Northwestern, uh, Alex Hornibrook couldn't play. I mean, it wasn't because the run game was still good. It was just when you look at, at what they did moving the football, just not good enough, right? I think they had the 12th best passing offense in the league. It was behind Illinois. It was behind Minnesota. You know, that's not that's not good enough if you're going to be – I mean, you you got to be more than just a run game. You have to give it some help, and I just don't think they did enough. Yeah, Alex Hornerbrook regressed in a big, big way. He wasn't that great to begin with, and then – but he did have that great Orange Bowl that gave everybody hope for this year. Um, I, I'm not sure what happened there. Did I? Was he the Manning counselor? Did he win that the Manning camp? I don't remember that. No, I don't. Remember. I feel he like might, I might have. I feel like I remember seeing that, and I feel like that's become a curse. Yes, I was correct. Alex Hornerbrook won the Manning Passing Academy competition this summer. So that was the reason. Okay, now we now we can move on. Well, it's not surprising that Wisconsin would have regressed a little bit on defense, given everybody they lost. But they had back the whole offensive line. Jonathan Taylor ran for almost 2,000 yards. They should have been a lot better on offense, and it really did come down to the quarterback position. Well, I mean, you know what What certainly didn't help? They were, like, near the bottom in the, in the Big Ten in turnover margin. And that's kind of a fickle stat. But when you have those issues, especially when you're a team that leans on the run so much, and certainly Jonathan Taylor had his fumble issues, I don't know. I, I think it's, that stuff's hard to overcome when your margin for error isn't that great. All right. You got any shout outs? Before we go, I, I, before I get into my shout out, I do have a question. This is, we talked about coaching changes. This is not at a big school, but it's one I forgot about. And then it, it hit me while we were going through the mailbag. A lot of people saw this coming even before the job opened up. What do you think is going to happen with Hugh Freeze at Liberty? Oh boy. guess we, we probably should have talked about that one earlier, huh? Yeah. But we can talk about it now. I mean, I've joked about it. How quickly is he going to get them on a bull band? But realistically, what's going to happen with Hugh Freeze at Liberty? I mean, he's, he knows how to coach. So he'll probably get them scoring points, winning games, and, uh, and doing it kind of – I mean, it helps, it helps that it's going to be kind of completely off the radar. Yeah. Will you pay attention to them at all now because he's there? Probably. I mean, it's, it's one of those – I mean, they're a school that gets kind of lost in the shuffle. They, um, well, they're a transitional school, that, that start of it. They so. also aren't in a conference. Like, and by the way, that's that's because nobody wanted them to be in their conference. I I don't want to go too deep into this, but the fact that a school, a religious school, hired as its AD Ian McCaw, who was at the center of the worst sexual assault scandal in college that we've seen in a long time, he was the disgraced AD. He wasn't like just like a member of the staff. He was he lost his job there. So he lost his job there. There were text messages between him and Art Bryles where they're trying to cover up stuff that they're that his players got in trouble for he's tried to blame it on you know some sort of agenda so first you start with that now he hires Hugh Freeze who is not implicated in anything like that but was fired because in part because his school I know I know the personal issues but I mean he also got his school on probation and in the uh, press conference Ian McCaw just kind of Gallingly just kind of like chucked that up to, well, you know, his assistants were doing things he didn't know about. It's not his fault. Uh, that's not what the NCAA thought. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Like I said, I, I would I would also definitely pay more attention to what's going on at Liberty. I think Freeze will win there. I don't know how much, how much he can win, and I don't know if he wins enough. I don't know. Do you think at some point Hugh Freeze will get back somewhere coaching in a Power 5, be the head coach of a Power 5 program? No. 
I no, think his next step. Not. I think his next step up the ladder will be to Sunbelt uh, or Sunbelt, CUSA, something like that. And maybe I don't know. Maybe after a few years of that, at that point, everything will be such a distant memory that he moves back up. But uh, it's hard. It's hard to overlook the, in particular, the NCAA issues. Yeah, look, it wouldn't shock me if someday he got back in Power Five. It really wouldn't. I mean, it wouldn't shock. Nothing shocks me anymore. No, Utah State just hired Gary Anderson, who a year and a half ago seemed to have blowtorched his whole career. I mean, at some point, didn't people say Bobby Petrino was unhireable? You know, after yeah, but you'll notice that it, I think what this all comes down to is it takes one school. Louisville was the one school that would have hired Bobby Petrino. Liberty is the one school that would have hired Hugh Freeze as his head coach. Utah State is the one coach that would hire Gary Anderson as his head coach. So, in fact, North Carolina is probably the only school that was looking to hire Mac Brown. So, you know, it takes one. Fair enough. Here's uh, Liberty's. Here's one reason he can win some games. Liberty's schedule in 2019. Uh, Syracuse, that's a loss. But then at Louisiana versus Buffalo versus Hampton versus New Mexico at New Mexico State. This was going to be my shout out. So can I do it now? Are you shouting out Ian McCall after all that? What are you, October what are you... 19th, they play Maine. Do you remember a few weeks ago? I we do. answered a question about Maine on the podcast. Maine is now in the uh, FCS semifinals. Go Black Bears. Then they play at Rutgers, at UMass, at BYU, at Virginia, and then, I forgot about this, they play a home-and-home in the same season with New Mexico State. I mean, I'll tell you right now, Hugh Freeze will have them in a bowl next year. Can they be in a bowl next year? Yes, they they were eligible this year. Okay, I didn't know that. All right. Uh, So your shout-out is going to be Maine. Yes, shout-out to Maine. Fair enough. Uh, My shout-out is actually going to be my four-and-a-half-year-old son, the reason why is because on Sunday, after coming back from soccer, we were supposed to go to some picnic thing that was part of like a, a, a group my wife knows. And my son just wanted no part of, he wanted to watch football. And he really made a little bit of a stink about watching football and didn't want to go to the picnic. And she was not happy with him. And she was like, all right, you got to stay home with him. And, you know, she took our daughter. And so they left, and I looked at him, and he was in a really good mood because he got to watch. We were watching the Saints game, and I thought about it. I was like, man, he really took a fastball on the back for me on this one because I was pretty happy about staying home. And, you know, at one point I turned to him. I was like, you know, you're in the doghouse, which he didn't know what that meant. He didn't quite understand the concept. But I was like, this parenting thing has a lot of perks here now, especially with him being able to appreciate football in the way it is and it's kind of a, I think I tweeted this out on Sunday. It's very cool to have these things you share with your kids. I didn't, uh, I kind of knew that was, you know, that was a potential, but just to actually see it and live it is very, very cool. So that is my shout out. Good job, Ben. Yeah. And it happened to come on a Sunday where, does that mean you got to watch the, uh, Miami, Kenya. No, we saw that on it. We saw that on the computer. Like we ended up watching Cal, uh, the Cowboys Eagles game, but where he got to see some really bad officiating, but no, that the Dolphins Patriots amazing ending. We saw that on the computer when it was just something that showed up on my Twitter feed. What about Pat Mahomes no look pass? Yeah, you know what? The Pat Mahomes no look pass we've seen before. I'm actually and I a few weeks ago when they had the, I think it was the Rams game. I'm pretty sure Pat Mahomes threw a no tried a no look that became a pick at the line. Um, I know he did it. I don't know if he did it in a game at Texas Tech. He did it a bunch at Texas Tech. I mean, yeah. I did a uh, a cover story for Dave Campbell's Texas Football, and we talked a lot about the no look and him and Nick Shimanek 
doing, uh, working on it. But I thought again, and somebody else may be able to go back and correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought Mahomes threw a no look pick, um, maybe by an outside linebacker defensive end in the, in the game against the Rams. And it didn't get like, nobody said it on the broadcast, but I'm pretty sure if you look at how his body lines up and I know he's, he's done it from time to time. I'm pretty sure that was one that kind of blew up in his face, but this one was, a, it's a thing of beauty when it goes good. Like it did on, uh, on Sunday. It's just amazing to me how much the NFL is starting to look more and more like the big 12, you know, the, the, the Baker Mayfield long touchdown pass looked like straight out of Oklahoma, the Mahomes, uh, touch. It wasn't a touchdown. It was a fourth down play where he scrambled and scrambled and then just threw it back across the field to Tyreek Hill. Like those are the plays we see on Saturdays. It's a good thing. Okay. Well, we will see you next week. <laughs> was that, that was a question? <laughs> no. Yeah. I was like, looked at something that popped up on my, on my, uh, Twitter feed that kind of like gave me pause for a bit. Fair enough. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink, and we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible.com and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time. Exchange.